Good morning. Hey. Hey, have you ever thought you had a grip on something, but it just didn't work out for you? I had one of those experiences when I was about eight years old or so. We, uh, the house that we lived in, down in the front yard in the corner, there was a couple of these really tall pine trees. And as kids, you love to just climb trees and have a great time. And so we would hang out in these trees, under these trees, in the trees, all sorts of stuff. And we even used to have these races to see who could climb them the fastest. And we were in one of these races one time. And we would just climb, and man, I was like a monkey, you know. I'd be like, whoo, right up the top. And we're racing and going, and I'm racing up there. And there was a friend of ours who happened to be in the tree. And he was like, a, he got up there above me, and he was waiting. And I got to that point, and I'm like, hey, hey, can I get by you? And he's like... No, no, no. And I'm like, if you just move over a little, I'll just go right around you. He's like, no. And, you know, he's a friend of mine, but I'm like, hey, why are you being so harsh? You know, and he pulls out this pocket knife. And he's holding his pocket knife, and he starts cutting the branch that my hand is on, right? And I'm like, dude, cut it out. That's not funny. You know, and I'm still looking around with his hand for something, and he's like, and he's cutting this branch. I'm like, cut it out. You know, it's not even, that's not funny. That's not funny. And he keeps cutting, he keeps cutting. All of a sudden, quick. I start falling 15 feet through the air, and I land on my back. Wham! You know, you ever fall from a far distance, like on your back, and you just, like, lose your breath? It knocks the wind out of you, right? You're like, for, like, a couple seconds, and people are talking to you, and you're like, you know, my brothers gather around. They're, like, trying to give me the Heimlich. I'm like, I'm not joking. I can't breathe. Leave me alone, you know, and they're pounding on me. And then I finally I start breathing, and I'm start, I start yelling at my friend. And all the time I have the branch still stuck in my hand. It was like I didn't let go. I like froze in air. I was like, ah, you know, and everything just went like that. And I'm bam, right on the ground. I'm like, dude, what's up with you? Why did you do that? You're my friend. I trusted you. How could you let me down? You know, uh, there are things in life that we think are just never going to let us down. One of those things is wealth. If we had it, we would be all set, a lot of us think. I mean, all of us, wouldn't you love to win the lottery? We think about that, right? And that's one of those questions that people ask you. They say, hey, what would you do if you won the lottery? What would you do with the money? Like, it's the most ultimate thing that we could ever get, is money. Because we believe that we would be all set for life if we had it. We have this tendency to think that money is the answer to the issues of life. If I could just get a little bit more money, then I would solve all my problems. Money would bring me opportunities, would bring me fame and relationships with other people, and I'd see famous people, exotic places. And money would bring security. I wouldn't have to work anymore. I would be free from debt collectors. I could pay off all my debts. Everything would be solved. The truth is, we do need money to live. I mean, it's what makes the world go round. We can't, like, trade and barter without the green stuff. Um, and yet the Bible cautions us that of money's seduction. Jesus even went so far as to say that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So, what am I saying? Is money evil? Is, uh, is it not good to attain wealth? No. In fact, I think it's a wise thing to attain wealth because we are providing for our families. So it could be a good thing. It's not a bad thing to be rich. In fact, God prospered Abraham, this guy Joseph who goes into Egypt and becomes the second ruler in the most powerful kingdom at that time. He's full. He has riches. God also prospered David and Solomon. We hear about his glory. And Daniel was like the third ruler in this kingdom of Babylon. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with money itself. But the problem is often becomes that it becomes the object of our affection, doesn't it? When addressing a topic like this, 
We talk about money because we're going to talk about money today. We start thinking in the pursuit of money. We start thinking about rich people. We're like lawyers, politicians, people climbing the company ladder. Yeah, those guys don't have a good perspective on it. And we think that this idea of love, of love of wealth is about them. But the truth is, poor people can have be just as money-hungry as someone's rich. They just haven't got the money yet, right? They can be there. But it's not about having wealth or not. It's about where you're putting your trust. If you guys pull out your outline, I put a little sentence in there. We're going to fill that out. It says, it's not about how much wealth you own. It's about how much your wealth owns you. It's not about how much wealth you own. It's about how much your wealth owns you. We're in the book of Revelation. We're in a series called, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And we're going to witness today the biggest stock market crash you've ever seen. We're in Revelation chapter 18. And the people of the world are watching all these crazy things go around and happening around their lives, but they still think they're safe because they believe that their riches are going to keep them safe. But believing that wealth can solve all of our problems sets us up for a fall. Let's start by reading in Revelation 18.1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated by his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she has rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. In the measure that she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am no widow, and I will, see, and I will not see sorrow. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. Last week, we saw Babylon destroyed, and we see it here again. I mean, what's going on, right? Last week, if you are here, Pastor Mark was talking about Babylon. And chapter 17 is talking about a one-world religious system. This religious system that's oppressing the people at the time. All the Christians are gone. All the people who love God, they're out of there. And it's this conglomeration of these twisted, monstrous religions that are oppressing. And the kings get rid of that, and they're excited. They're rejoicing over that. But here in chapter 18, what we actually see is a one-world economic system and political center. If you look, we first see this city called Babylon. And it could be a literal Babylon, the Babylon that exists today. It could be that Babylon. We know that Saddam Hussein sunk billions of dollars trying to rebuild that city. However, we kind of know what happened at that point. It could be symbolic. It could be Rome or another city. The question comes to my mind, is it possible for a city to rise to such fame and power? Because we're going to read a little bit farther and we're going to see how glorious and magnificent this city actually is. You guys ever heard of Dubai? Anyone here? Dubai? Some hands? Great. Dubai? Look at Dubai. I got a picture of before and after up here. This is in 1991 on the top. It's like desert, you know. I think I see like some camels. 
And over here, Dubai in 2005, even four years ago, look at the difference. It's green down, you know, little thing's not working right, green down there and all these, all these buildings, man, like overnight. Listen, they also have an indoor skiing wonderland called Ski Dubai. Look at that. It's this big thing. See, you can see it's already built. There's the slope, and there it is uh, there. But this is what it looks like inside. It's like you're in Denver or Aspen or something, you know, and you have hot chocolate. And then you leave, and you, then you go out to the desert right after that, and you drink whatever they drink in the desert. You just kind of hang out. Like, they got everything that you could possibly want. Not only that, this Burj Al Arab Hotel that we hear on the screen right here, it is the only seven-star restaurant in the world. The only one. To stay here one night in the cheapest room is $1,700. If you were to stay in the most expensive room, it's $11,000 for one night. You may have seen pictures of like, see that little top thing at the, the Andre Agassi and I think Federer, wherever his name is, they were playing tennis up on that thing. It's the helipad. And then they also have pictures like Tiger Wood. They flew them out just for that. That's how luxurious it is. Listen, how about this? The, the Burj Dubai is the tallest building in the world. It's about another third the size of the Empire State Building. This was in 2008. Like, this is all covered now with all the nice silver and stuff. Let me look at it. It's towering over these other buildings. It's the largest building in the world today. Not only that, look at these man-made islands that they have. This is a satellite view. If you guys, like, go on once in a while, just check out Dubai, I can't resist. It's like, a, it's just drawing me. Look at, they built these islands themselves. There's one that's shaped like the world that they're building and a couple others. And all on these little things are million-dollar, billion-dollar homes that people are buying. From all, only if you've got money. Listen, all this happened in less than 20 years. Less than 20 years. 1991 is when it started. Listen, I'm not saying that this is Babylon. But what I am saying is look on at this city and see how quickly a city of that magnitude could actually come to be in today's, with today's technology. But this city, because it offers so much luxury and everything, it's become a city of sin. And the sin has reached up as high as heaven, it says. But we also see a one-world economy in this area. You see, in chapter 13, we talked about the fact that if you didn't bow down and worship the Antichrist, then you could not buy or sell because he controls the economy. These ten nations come together with all their political power, with their military might, with all their economies, joined together a one-world economic political system based in this one city. The kings and merchants become rich by this city. Trusting in their riches set them up for a fall when the city is destroyed in one day. <clears throat> Listen, it can set us up for a fall too. In your outline, it says, trusting in your riches leads to, one, a fractured relationship with God. A fractured relationship with God. If the answer to the most, most questions in life is wealth, then all I have to do to gain wealth, to be satisfied, right? That's all I have to do is gain wealth. All I have to do is go out and get it. By my own power, I can build kingdoms, I can get the girl, I can live the life, I can provide for myself. All I want could be mine. All I have to do is go get it. And I'm able to take care of myself. I have no need for anything else. No need for people and no need for God. I'm self-sufficient. You see, Babylon throughout its history had a history of being self-sufficient. The first Babylon, the Tower of Babel, you guys heard that? That was the first great city that existed, the Bible says, on this planet. And they built this giant tower. 
They wanted a place to build a place where they were no longer in need of God. Listen to what it says in the Bible. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. We're going to be like God. We're going to be the guy that doesn't need God anymore because we're self-sufficient. The second in Babylon go forward about 1,700 years to about 70 B.C. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, you maybe you've heard his name, comes to power. And this is one of the greatest world kingdoms that's ever existed. There's only been like five that have dominated, and this is one of them. And he has this, his palace is in Babylon, this great city. And you may know how great it was just because you know, or maybe you don't know, but the seven ancient wonders of the world, one is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. They believe that this city even had some form of air conditioning. Well, there's Nebuchadnezzar one day. He's walking in this beautiful garden, and he says, Look what I have done. Look what I brought on myself. Look at it in the Bible. It says this. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Man, he thinks he's awesome. But listen, now we see Babylon again in the future. This third Babylon and this coalition of ten kingdoms in the world's center for economics, uh, economy and commerce. Listen, this is what he said. I'll remind you of this. We just read it. It says, In the measure she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Listen, I'm no widow. I don't need anyone to take care of me. And my children will prosper. I won't lose anything. I'll never have sorrow. I've got it all in control. And we get to this city in this future time, this amazing city, and it's like, hey, we don't need God no more. You see, there's no mix between trusting in wealth and trusting in God. It doesn't mix. The Bible says this, Jesus said it, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other and you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The obsessive nature of wealth is in every one of us. And listen, I say a fractured relationship, that means a crack, because what happens is wealth drives a wedge between us and God. And eventually, we'll take over. It will take the place of God. The nature of wealth is to be master over you. Isn't it? How many people own a house? Anybody? Okay. You know... You think you're the owner, right? But how much does that house own you? You've got to repair. There's always a new repair every week. And if you're a guy, you know your wife wants you to do something new every single time. You haven't even finished the last honeydew project or whatever it is, right? You've got to pay taxes on it, insurance on that. You've got to pay the mortgage on that. You are paying, paying, paying. You are a slave to that house. If you own a car, you know the same thing. What do you have to do? You've got to feed it gas. You've got to feed it oil. I've got to pay for insurance. I've got to register it. I've got to pay for the breakdowns and get tune-ups. It is your master. You see, what are some of the signs that money is becoming our master? When you have time for overtime at work, but not for the church, to come to church, but not for the Bible, to read it, not to pray. That's a sign that maybe money is becoming your master instead of God. When it causes you to make financial decisions that would put you in jeopardy, like gambling or prospect buying, that would put you... In debt, it's becoming your master. Listen, when your debt service, your credit cards and stuff, is more than you can pay monthly, it's your master. That card isn't a MasterCard for nothing. It's your master. Money is becoming the master 
that we serve. Listen, trusting in riches also leads to a focus on self. A focus on self. We're going to read again in Kings, uh, excuse me, Revelation chapter 9. It says, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a, great, at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. For one, uh, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, of every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that <clears throat> you long, so your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine purple, uh, fine linen, purple, scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by ships, sailors, as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw uh, dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has, is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. The destruction of this great city brings mourning. These kings and these merchants, they've got to get out. They're standing afar off and they're looking on. They're like mourning over this city. I find it interesting that the city goes up in smoke and they're concerned with all the trading, all the goods, but they're not concerned about the people. None of the people, they don't care that this economy has wiped out all these people that this destruction has done. Human life means nothing to them. I mean, look what it says, some of the things that they actually sold, bodies and souls of men. I mean, they're going to be like kidnapping people or just selling people into slavery and people are going to be bidding on them to do things like prostitution or whatever. And people are going to lose themselves. They're going to lose their souls in the city of great wealth and opportunity and all these things, every luxury, everything that they possibly could want. They'll lose themselves in wealth and power and fame and drugs and prostitution, all these things. The destruction of human lives means nothing to them when it comes to making money. And that's why the Bible says this, for the love of money is the root of all evil, because it cares nothing about people. We become more centered on wealth and the acquisition of it than the, wealth, than the welfare of others around us. And this can happen to varying degrees. I don't know if you guys ever sold a car, but selling cars is a tough thing. You know why? I had a 1968 Mercury Cougar once. And before you think that's awesome, it wasn't a very nice-looking car. But they're awesome cars. I mean, it was a nice-looking car. It just wasn't bad shape. Let me put it that way. Stylish, you know, sexy, sleek. But listen, this car that I had was like kind of a, a little bit of a rust bucket, you could say. The, it had a vinyl top, and that vinyl top had been on there so long and water had gotten under it that it actually put holes in the metal. So like there was metal up, but you couldn't see it because there was a vinyl top still and there was the, you know, the liner on the inside. 
And, you know, it had a transmission leak and it was overheating and it didn't have air conditioning and it needed paint and body work and it needed all sorts of stuff. And so I wanted to sell this car, but knowing it was like a 1968, I'm thinking, well, I can get some money. I wanted $1,200, so I'm pricing it high, hoping I'll get some. First guy comes out to see it, and he and his dad come look at it, and they're kind of like car buffs and know a lot about cars, and they're like, I'll give you 400 bucks. I'm like, 400 bucks? I don't want 400 bucks. You've got to come up higher than that, you know? But he's like, look, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this, I have to do this. So this other person calls me. It's a woman. She calls up, and she says, hey, uh, you're selling a 1968 Mercury Cougar. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, listen, I want that car. That's like my dream car. And I'm like, listen, honey, you don't want this car. Trust me. <laughs> you don't want this car. She's like, no, I want this car. And I'm like, listen, there are so many headaches. Trust me, you don't want this car. And she kept begging me and begging me and begging me. So finally I said, all right, the only, I'll give it to you on one condition. You bring a mechanic to look at it. Because here's the thing when you sell a car. What do you do? You clean it up, you, clean, you vacuum the inside, you wipe up all the oil, right? So no one knows what the real problems are in the car, right? Because you're going to leave it to them to find out. Because you're more concerned with getting the final price than you are whether the person gets a lemon or not, right? So she comes over and I'm like, that's all right. She brings her friend and I'm like, the friend claims he's a mechanic, he's looking it over, and then she like offers me like 800 bucks and I'm like, cha-ching, that was the price, I'm thinking, Right? But then I'm looking at this woman, I'm like, you don't even know what has to be done to this car. So I start telling her all the things. I can't take it. My conscience is killing me. This woman's going to get this lemon. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I kept going and telling her, telling her, telling her. Finally, I sold to her for 200 bucks. Like, she was offering me 800. I gave it 200 because I couldn't take it. But you know what? My nature wanted me not to really care about whether it was a good deal for her. My nature wanted me to have the money. I want the money. And that's what it does for us, you and me. It's, it's just in us. Listen, our children suffer because they don't have... T- sometimes we don't have time to spend time with them because we're spending it in pursuit of something else. Bankruptcy. Bankruptcy. You know, bankruptcy does not care about the people that were owed. I have a friend, his business, last year, he lost uh, $40,000 because people went bankrupt and didn't pay him. You realize when you go bankrupt, somebody doesn't get paid... You know, we think, okay, well, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, right? Somebody's paying for it. Bankruptcy doesn't care about people. We've made it very easy for us to escape our debts and start again without worrying it, worrying about it. But somebody's paying. The housing crisis we currently face was built on the love of money. Think about it, the love of wealth and money. Somebody wanted a really nice house that they couldn't afford. Some banker over here wanted to lend them that money because they were going to make money off of it, right? I know you can't afford it, but we'll just like say, even though there's rules about this, that we're, not, we're going to kind of ignore them. Because there's a giant balloon payment that's going to come up, and I know you can't afford it, but I'm going to write you the policy anyway. And they're like, great, I just want the house. I don't really care. And they're not thinking about what their finances are either. And greed puts these two people together, and now they can't afford that house. And so the American taxpayers are bailing out Two people, two entities, because of their love for wealth. Sorry, it's an ugly thing, but it's the truth, isn't it? It's the truth. That's what happened. And so all of us, because it doesn't, the bank didn't care about the person. And the person really didn't care about the bank. They just wanted what they wanted. Listen, this may sound rough, but that's where trusting in riches leads us. Listen, it also leads us to a false sense of security. Look at it, in Revelation 21, it says, 18 verse 21, it says, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the city 
The great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. The sound of harpists, musicians, flautists, and trumpets shall not be heard in you anymore. Nor craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of the millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. There's a lot of anymores. For your merchant, merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. Listen, after the destruction of this city, there's nothing left. There's nothing there. There's no people. There's no riches. There's nothing. It lies in desolation. It was perhaps the city, the seat of the most powerful government and economy, and now it lies in ruins. Listen, wealth tells us that everything is going to be all right now that I'm rich, right? Isn't that what the lottery tells you and me? I'm going to win that lottery, and it's going to, everything's going to be all right. Everything's going to be fine. The Florida Institute of Technology did this study, and they found out that a third of all lottery winners end up filing for bankruptcy. I guess it didn't work for them. The sense of security has us believing that everything is all right. The wealth that is going to keep me protected is actually very fragile. If there's one thing we see through the book of Revelation, is that everything is going to disappear. Everything. You know, I'm not very old, but I've never seen things like the economy, the state that we see it in right now. I mean, the stock market just recently, last year, took so much, took like a nosedive on people. And we were encouraged, everyone was investing in their 401ks, right, for your retirement. And everybody's like, a 401k, that's like a sure thing. When I hit 65 or wherever you want to retire, I'm going to get that money. I know people lost $18,000. Another person lost $30,000. Somebody lost half of their retirement because of the stock market fluctuation. Real estate. People bought homes expecting they'd be worth more or at least as much as they paid. I knew a pastor. He bought a house and his house is $100,000 less than what he paid for it. And right now he can't find a buyer and of course he's going into foreclosure. Listen, how about government bonds? You want to put your money there? The National Debt Service for 2008 was $412 billion. That debt service means we're paying interest on the debts that we owe. We owe $11.6 trillion. You know that's a national debt paid to other entities? Well, the, the interest alone in one year is $412 billion. That is the third largest item on our uh, economic budget for the United States. The third largest item is going out the door. Who wants to buy a government bond right now? You think you're going to get paid? Somebody in the back wants one. All right. Listen, Jesus illustrated this point in a parable. He said this. He spoke to them saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. And he thought within himself saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? God's saying this illustration that money can go at any time. Yeah, you might pass away. That's maybe, maybe you're going to lose it. But it can just leave. And we see it today so often that we can't trust in riches. And it brings a false sense of security. Watch out for the seduction of Babylon because everything is going to burn. 
In light of that, how should we live our life in the present in regard to wealth and our possessions? Well, in your outline, shift your trust from wealth to God. Number one, learn to be content. To content. Learn to be content. You see, most of us learn to be content with where we want to be. With where we want to be. What do I mean by that? We're actually living at a level that we can't afford. The combined consumer debt is $2.5 trillion. Consumer debt would be homes, loans, car loans, business loans, I guess. Is that consumer debt? No, not business loans. And uh, credit card debt. Credit card debt alone is $9.7 million a year. And the population right now is $304 billion. If we were to like spread that wealth out, every baby that dropped out today, they're already owing us $3,000 in credit card debt alone. That's a lot of money. Listen, this is often why a new job or a raise doesn't seem to make a difference in our lives because we're already living at a level that's beyond our means. This is due in part because we think we need to have everything right now. Um, when I was, you guys remember when the iPods actually came out and they were black and white, right? Do you remember that? They weren't color, they weren't all the technology we have, they were black and white, you could play your music on it. And then uh, some people in the office had one of those, but then a new model came out with a lot more memory, like 32 and 64 gigs, and it had color screen. I'm like, I'm going to buy that thing. This thing was $600. Like, think back now, like, right? $600, and I was like, I'm going to get that. So I had friends give me gift certificates to the Apple store, and I went down there and I bought it. Man, this is, this is it. I still have it today. Look at this thing, man. It's like, it's like huge. It, they call it the brick around the office. The brick, right? You know what really bugs me? Three months later, it went down by $200. $200. And within a year, within one year, this became obsolete. They don't sell this anymore. They don't sell anything for this thing anymore. Because the new video one came out, which is like the size of this little white speck thing up here. That's how small it is. I'm, I got this stupid brick. I mean, I can't even go jogging with this thing. I get bruises, you know? So I gave it to my wife. <laughs> Listen, all of us want what everybody else has. You know, we want the new, the in sneakers, the fads that are out today, the right clothing. We want to have the flat screen. I mean, I don't know how many times people have asked me to get a flat screen. I got like this giant tube thing that someone gave me, and I've had that thing for like eight years. People keep going like, bro, why don't you move up, get the flat screen? I'm like, dude, it works fine for me. You know, we, we, we're not satisfied with where we're at. Think about this. When, when flat screens came out, plasmas came out first, when those came out, how much did they cost? thousand, three grand, seven grand, somewhere like high as seven grand, those big ones. And people are like, I'll pay, I'll shell out for that. What happened a year later, two years later? They like reduced in half. You can buy a, like a 42-inch right now for about 300 to $500. If we could learn to be content with where we're at, then we will be able to wisely see opportunities when they come our way. This is what the Bible says. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can take, can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. 
Listen, the key to contentment is steady plotting. That's the key, steady plotting. Earn some, save some, spend some, and give some. This will bring you peace. Structure always brings peace. Listen, you'll be at peace when the bill collector is not knocking on your door. And when opportunities come your way, because you've been content with where you're at, you'll be able to take advantage of them. They say that this is the best time right now to buy a house, if you have money, right? Can you imagine the people who said, I'm content with where I'm at right now with the house that I have instead of upgrading? Those people are in a position right now to get an amazing deal on a house. Second thing is have a manager mentality. Have a manager mentality. Are you an owner or a manager? Listen, when we look at the stuff from a manager perspective, we see things differently than we see it if we're an owner. You see, if we're a manager, we're only going to have this stuff for a certain amount of time. Our lifetime, that's it. Maybe less. But when I own it, I never want to let it go. It's mine. I earned it. I want it. So often, Jesus in parables used examples that we would, should be managers or stewards, he calls it. Listen to this. The Lord replied, a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds the servant has done a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all he owns. The basis of great gain is how well we use what God has given us. The manager mentality helps me not to worry. You know what happens when you get a new car? You're worried about the first scratch that it's going to get, right? That's the thing you're worried about. You protect it, you wash it, you wax it, you park it. I'm not under trees because you don't want birds to poop on it. And you park somewhere away from people because you don't want the first scratch. The scratch is going to ruin everything, isn't it? I believe that everything new should just come with a scratch. Just get rid of the worry. Just give me a scratch, forget about it. Then it's, it's all set now. You know, if you're a new... If, you're, if, you're, if you own a car, you, you're going to be like, man, I scratched the thing I just paid for. But if you don't own it and you're just a manager, you're like, God, I have no idea why you want to scratch on your car, but you got one now. It's like, you don't care. You don't care. Look at that. This is what just, he's giving me. That's great. He wants a scratch? I'll drive around with a scratch. Manager mentality would also produce gratefulness. You see, when you're a manager, whatever comes your way, you're grateful for. When you're an owner, you never have enough. Always a little bit more is going to do it. If I can get a little bit more, if I can get my hands on a little bit more, because I am the owner. But if you're a manager, you're grateful. You're happy with God is, what God has given you. Let me ask you, who owns your stuff? Do you own it or does God? Managing versus owning breaks the obsession that we have over wealth. Listen, I want to tell you a final story here. Um, I want to tell you my first experience in a roller coaster. I was like six years old. It was in Canandaigua, New York. I was visiting my uncle. It's up in the Finger Lakes, near the Great Lakes. And that's where he lived. And we went there, and there was a fair in town. And you're like six years old. You know, those roller coasters look huge, right? And my aunt loves roller coasters. So she's like, John, I want someone to come on. You come on with me. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to go on that. But she's like, listen, it'll be fun. You'll love it. And I'm like, all right. So I get in that roller coaster. You know those old roller coasters are like all wood and metal, and it's like you get a little bang, and it hurts you, right? Well, my aunt was a large woman, so it was really nice and comfortable. But I'm sitting in that roller coaster car, 
and I'm like holding on, and so it's like, okay, things are good, and it's the old ones that just have the bar, you know, like you get whacked in the chest and all this stuff, but I, I'm, I'm sitting in that thing, and it starts going up the incline, and you know, the incline probably wasn't that big, but to me, people look like ants, and so I'm going up, and I'm like, and as I get farther and farther up, because I'm a little scared of heights, I start gripping it a little tighter, right, I'm grabbing a little harder, a little harder, and I get up to the top, I get up to the top, and I'm, now this time I'm like, oh gosh, I don't even want to look over the edge, you know, and I get up to the top, and I see the drop, and I go, oh my God, I close my eyes, and I go like this, right, and I go like all the way down, and doing bam, bam, and my eyes like, John, look up, look up, and I'm like, I hear all this screaming, why would I want to look up, and I'm like, and I'm going like this, I'm going to die, you know, I'm going to die, and I'm talking so softly, you know, she thought I was weeping, and then when we get to the end, you know, I get off and she goes, John, all I could see was white knuckles and hair. That was you the whole ride. you got to let go a little bit. Enjoy it. And I'm like, that was crazy. But for some sick reason, I need to go on another roller coaster. So later, you know, as life built up, I kept going on roller coasters. And here's a valuable thing. I'm going to tell you guys how, this is a secret, and it's from me to you, valuable information. I'm going to tell you how to enjoy a roller coaster. The way to enjoy a roller coaster is to hang on loosely. Not to grip it tight. Actually, the people that enjoy the roller coaster the most, she's doing it, is to let go and put your hands in the air. You let go. Because here's what happens. When you are on a roller coaster and you grip tightly, you believe that somehow you can control what your body is going to do. Listen, those things are designed to whip you around. I mean, you ever see those documentaries on roller coasters talking about G-forces? I'm just thinking, you know, what's a G-force? That's how powerful these things are. And they're going to whip you around. And here's what happens. You grip it, right? So the first jolt comes. Ugh, I couldn't hold on. So what do you do? You grip a little tighter. So you get to the next one. You go, Ugh, and you do it again. I'm going to get myself in control. And you grip tighter and tighter. And by the time you're done with that roller coaster ride, you're like a ball of muscle and gristle. Just like this. You're like, I know that sucked. You know, I don't think I like that. Listen, when you let go, you're like not in control. You don't care. You know what's throwing you around. And you actually enjoy the ride. That's what I do all the time now. And I say that to my friends. You want to enjoy it? Just put your hands in the air. Just let go. And you're going to have a great time. Listen, it's the same way with our finances. We've got to hold on loosely. Hold on loosely. The best grip that you can have on your finances is a loose grip. That's the best thing. The tighter you grip your stuff, the scarier the ride is going to be. You see, that's what happens. We were watching the fluctuation, right? Oh, my God, of the stock market. We tense up a little bit because we're not holding on loosely to those things. We're like, oh, something's going wrong. Oh, there's another expense at my house. Oh, this is going wrong. And everything is causing us to tempt up and not enjoy the ride. When you begin to let go of control you have over worldly things, it's then that the ups and downs and jolts of life will not bother you and you'll actually enjoy life. If God has given you wealth, then God has blessed you with that for a reason. You have been blessed with wealth so that you can bless other people. I can tell you where your trust lies based on how generous a person you are. Because you're either trusting in your riches or you're going to trust in God. Listen, the Bible says this, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, 
They will store up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so they may experience true life. No matter where you are in the financial spectrum, right now is your opportunity to bless others. You don't have to just be rich. If you're in debt, begin to be a good steward of the money that God has given you and it will be a testimony and an encouragement to others when they see that you are able to overcome your debt. Listen, if you're poor, I'm not in debt, but I'm just poor, flat out poor, I don't have a lot of money. Then demonstrate your reliance on God in such a way that it inspires others. Watching people who have little to share with others and they do it, man, is one of the most motivating things I've ever seen in my life. And it will help others draw closer to God. Listen, if you're rich, if God has brought you wealth, then use it to bless others and accomplish great things for a world that's in need. Listen, each one of us has a step to take today financially. Why don't you pull out your connection cards for a moment? Each one of us has a step. Listen, maybe you're the person who said, you know what, I am the one who's in debt right now. Well, listen, we're going to offer you a chance to get out of debt, to get on the right path to getting out of debt. You can attend a financial seminar on September 26th where you're going to learn financial principles on how to do that. Biblical principles. You'll also walk out that day with a budget in your hand. If you say, man, that's what I need, then sign up for that. Maybe you're a person who says, man, I want to give more, I want to do more, but I just don't know how to work that into my budget, and you need a little bit of financial counseling. Then check off on the top of that. Receive financial counseling. We give free financial counseling at the church. You check that off, and we will call you this week. We'll send you an email, and we'll set up an appointment so you can begin to work on that. Listen. The problem arises when we grip too tightly. And generosity is the key to freedom. The economy of God is the polar opposite of the economy of the world. The world says you get when you take. Right? God says you get by giving. Listen to this. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Man, you ever fill up a cup with something and you want to get as much in as you can? You press it down. You put it so it's like overflowing when you get it. And God says, that's what you're going to get. Listen, if you've been a Christian for some time, can I ask you a question? Have you begun the practice of tithing? If you haven't, why not? Tithing is basically, about, God says, give 10% of everything that comes into your household. Do you trust God enough? Who's your God? Listen, I heard this story a long time ago. It was in the Bible college, and there's this guy, he was a homeless man. And the homeless man said, all right, from now on, Lord, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm sick of this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tithe every time I get something. So when he got something, he was going to tithe. But instead of tithing 10%, he said, I'm going to give 90% to you, and I'm going to live off 10. Now, I heard this in the Bible college. I don't know if it's a true story or not. But I'm like, this guy, they said, got so much money, he couldn't shovel it out fast enough. You give him 90% away, it's like, hey, the doors are open. He's just like giving it away. And I don't know if it was true or not, but it inspired me. I'm like, wow, you think God would really do that? How amazing would that be? Not that I care if I have a lot of money, but what what would all the things that we'd be able to witness and see and God do? Man, that would be awesome. You know, there's a guy, and this is a true story, there's a guy who actually does that. Rick Warren, who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. When he started Saddleback Church back in the 80s, he began with his wife to give progressively. 
You know, Pastor Bob taught about that once. Pastor Bob said there's three types of giving, purpose to give, percentage giver, give 10%. But then he also said progressive giving, progressive giving. And he said, and it was like God was speaking to me. He's like, if you've been a Christian for like 10 or 15 years, are you still just tithing or are you giving more? And I'm like, uh, you know, more like that. Try to dodge that one, right? I'm like, I was thinking about it though. And I'm like, wow, I should probably be trusting more. I, I've been, for 10 years, I've been trusting him with tithing. Can I actually trust him with more? Let me ask you this question again. If you're not tithing, why not? Who is your God? Do you believe that God is actually able to do what He says He's able to do or not? Is He or isn't He? My God is. I'm thinking, that's the God I want to believe in. That's the God I think does that. Then I need to do it. Listen. The Bible says this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Almighty, Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. He says, listen, you tithe and I'm going to open the floodgates of heaven. You're never going to have a need. doesn't mean you're going to be rich. I don't know what blessings are going to come from that. But he says, I will do that. And he says this, test me on this. Test me. If there's one area, is this, test me on this. He says in the Bible... Listen, I want you guys to experience God in ways you've never experienced Him. I've been preparing for this class, um, Why I Believe the Bible. It's at tonight at 6 o'clock, based on science. And so I'm online listening to guys like Richard Dawkins. You guys know who Richard Dawkins is? Foremost atheist in the world. Atheist. And his challenge, most of the time, to people who are Christians, and it just made me think, he's like, you know, what proof? You can't, you can't prove God. Can you prove Him? I'm like thinking, yeah, I know what he's done in my life. Man, I've seen him do things. And it's like, well, prove it. Show me. Like, I can't. But like in my heart, I know. And a lot of us want this. We want to say, I want to see the God of the Bible that does amazing things. What if he did that in my life? How amazing would that be? I'd know for certain that God exists. Even if maybe I can't prove it to you, I would know. And if we were to step out in faith and do something where God challenges us to, to see if He actually would do it and be the God that He says He is, and then He does it, how amazing would that be? When Bob said that, it took a little time because it, it was hard to do, I started progressively giving. My, my wife and I, we progressively give. We give, give more and more. I'm excited at the beginning of this year because we're going to give more. To be honest, I was saying to her the other day, I am so excited we get to 25%. We get to 50%. My intention is to give that much and more. And just keep going because I believe that my God is able. The question is, do you believe that? Because the key to holding on loosely is letting go, is giving. When you experience trust like that, the trust in God, where you're saying, God, you, you give, you, I'll take 90, you take 10, and I'm going to trust you. All these things we hear in the news, all those things that bother you about the economy, they're not going to bother you anymore. Trust me, because you're trusting in Him. You might decide to make a wise financial decision based on it, but it won't shake your foundation because you no longer trust in riches. Listen, when you get to heaven, what will happen at the end of your life? Will you see, look back and see time wasted? Will you see all those fashions and things that you pursued and all those riches all piled up in a heap somewhere or burned somewhere? I mean, those things are going to seem so silly to us then. 
You know, will you have been in debt when you died? And you look back and you say, man, I never realized the full potential of really helping others because I didn't get out of debt. Will you look back and see this overstuffed bank account that can't hold any more and you're like, man, this is a ton of opportunity that I didn't use to bless others. Listen, keep a loose grip on the things of this world because they're not going to follow you into the next world. God gives us this incredible invitation. I'm, I'm done here, but listen. He gives us an incredible give, invitation. What we read in Revelation 18, verse 4, it said this. He heard, we hear this voice from heaven. It says, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins unless you receive of her plagues. God warns His people to get out of Babylon before He destroys it. How many people do you think or do you suppose stayed in there in the destruction because they couldn't let go? Because they had to keep that tight grip. Listen, God has better things in store for you and I than Babylon. So much more. And when we hold on to it with a loose grip, it's then that God's going to show up in big, amazing ways in your life. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for um, the fact that you are really faithful, like your word says. Lord, I pray that you give us enough faith to step out and trust you in all the areas and things that you want to in our lives. Lord, as we're considering these things, whatever step it is that we have to make today, I pray, Lord, you give us the strength to do it and to follow through. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.